This is a recording of Second Nephi as a Legal Document by Martin Oman Evans, published in Interpreter, a Journal of Latter-day Saint Faith and Scholarship, read by Victor Worth. Abstract. Considering conventions of the ancient Near East, Second Nephi can be understood as a legal document or legal archive. Factors supporting this view include, one, Nephi's allusions to sealing the record and to a bar of judgment. Two, discussion of the law of witnesses and reference to Isaiah and Jacob as witnesses. Three, components and formatting consistent with Neo-Babylonian depositions and plaintiff statements. Four, uncharacteristically formal and conservative high-fidelity citations of Isaiah. And five, rhetoric and vocabulary consistent with the Judean legal genre. Nephi's inclusion of Jacob's and Isaiah's words as a witness and his references to judicial procedure can be readily understood. Further, the structure of Second Nephi, consistent with legal conventions of the time, can be viewed as collated texts that contain a covenant framing the Nephite situation, Second Nephi 1 through 4, a reaction, Second Nephi 4 through 5, three supporting witness statements, Second Nephi 6 through 10, 12 through 24, 25 through 28, and finally, a plaintiff statement, Second Nephi 33. Recognizing the legal implications of Second Nephi can help us appreciate Nephi's agenda as author and editor of his text, as well as the meaning of his document in our day. The Book of Mormon contains an abridgment of many records from the people of Nephi. Within the Book of Mormon, there are also two unabridged books written by Nephi. These books were written in the 6th century BCE, approximately 1,000 years before the main corpus of the Book of Mormon. Cultural changes will inevitably occur over time, and some changes may have been deliberate, 2 Nephi 25.2. Consideration of contemporary ancient Near Eastern customs may be critical in understanding Nephi's text. The second book of Nephi has confounded readers for more than a hundred years. Highlighting its importance, Elder Jeffrey R. Holland stated that, quote, standing like sentinels at the gate of the Book of Mormon, close quote, the writings in Second Nephi, quote, admit us into the scriptural presence of the Lord, close quote. Some readers, however, may feel Second Nephi is a, quote, compilation of instructive but unrelated incidents, doctrines, and prophecies, close quote. Perhaps because the book of Second Nephi remains enigmatic, its structure has been the subject of sustained inquiry over many years. While there are many perspectives, few of them are mutually exclusive. Some secular scholars have opined that Second Nephi is a collection of contextless excerpts or reflections or commentary interwoven with scripture. Brent Gardner writes that Nephi starts to write a narrative, but later his intent changes and he includes a sermon. Frederick Axelgard argues for a holistic interpretation of both books written by Nephi. He notes the spiritual themes in 2 Nephi parallel the historical themes in 1 Nephi. They have similar themes presented in the same order. Joseph Spencer places Isaiah's encounter with God, 2 Nephi 16, as the central part of 2 Nephi. He shows that Nephi uses Isaiah's encounter with God as a paradigm for how God interacts with all his children. Spencer suggests Nephi has much of 2 Nephi in mind, 
when he refers to, quote, more sacred things, 1 Nephi 19.5. Spencer has also reasonably suggested modern readers overlook a major division within 2 Nephi, which should be placed prior to 2 Nephi 6.1. Noel Reynolds states that this, quote, challenges the book Divisions Left to Us by the original author, close quote. Reynolds demonstrates there is an overarching symmetrical chiastic structure centered on 2 Nephi 11. Thereby, 2 Nephi presents itself foremost as a witness of Christ, which is the theme of 2 Nephi 11. Reynolds continues by saying that 2 Nephi, quote, elevates the traditional meaning of the Abrahamic Lehitic promises into a focus on Christ, close quote. Terrell Givens' comments are similar. He shows that 2 Nephi establishes a broader Nephite identity. Gibbons does this by comparing the Nephite's history with that of the Jews exiled in Babylon. Gibbons notes the Babylonian exile was met with a counter-reaction that solidified Jewish thought, text, and language. He points out that the Babylonian exile ultimately led to the production and adoption of the Torah. Similarly, the Nephites, unnerved by the fall of Jerusalem, the center of Jewish worship, needed to forge a new identity. Second Nephi reassures there is a new land of promise. Taylor Halverson points out Second Nephi contains covenants and is therefore law for the Nephites. He writes that Second Nephi contains, quote, Lehi's last will and covenantal speech, close quote. John Welch has also demonstrated that the initial portion of Second Nephi is the ancient equivalent of Lehi's will and testament. Lehi's words establish Nephi as a leader and more. According to Welch, this text functions as a, quote, legal and constitutional basis for several future centuries of Nephite thought and life, close quote. He notes these initial chapters contain similar components as legal ancient Near Eastern texts. Jan Martin suggests Jerusalem was so fundamental and crucial in First Temple period religion and culture that it may have been the announcement of the destruction of Jerusalem that prompted the division of First and Second Nephi. She adds to this by demonstrating the initial five chapters of Second Nephi are a highly structured suzerain covenant consistent with ancient Near Eastern tradition. Martin identifies sections within Second Nephi containing a preamble, historical prologue, stipulations, blessings and cursings, and instructions for preserving and remembering the covenant. However, a final component of suzerain treaties that appears absent on initial evaluation is a list or mention of witnesses. Juxtaposing the covenantal documents of Deuteronomy and Second Nephi, Martin states, quote, Moses specified that the heavens and the earth were witnesses, Deuteronomy 32.1, and he directed the large inscribed stones be set up on the banks of the river Jordan as witnesses to Israel's covenant renewal, see Deuteronomy 27.1-3. If Lehi did something similar with objects, Nephi did not record it on the small plates, close quote. Martin continues, quote, Lehi's descendants, who were all present at the covenant renewal ceremony, could easily have served as the witnesses to the covenant. Close quote. Herein, I agree with Gibbons and Halverson. The book of Second Nephi is tantamount to a manifesto that forms the ethos and law of the Nephite nation. 
I differ from Welch as I hold that more than the first section of Second Nephi can be understood as a legal text. I agree with Spencer that a significant division could be made between chapters 5 and 6 of Second Nephi. Reynolds' chiastic model strengthens my position. He writes Second Nephi 11 is the centermost part of Second Nephi. It is in this section that Nephi writes, quote, By the words of three, God will establish his word. Nevertheless, God sendeth more witnesses. Verse 3. It may seem straightforward that Second Nephi contains witness statements. But this paper demonstrates Nephi uses conventions seen in ancient legal proceedings to present these witness statements. Therefore, in contrast to Martin, I hold there is an explicit identification of witnesses within Second Nephi. Yet, Martin's insights solidify our anticipation that witnesses should be provided in the record following Lehi's words. The concept of objects as a witness in ancient Mesopotamia. In modern convention, we may use the word witness to refer to people that can attest to specific events. But as Martin points out, objects, even stones, could stand as a witness. It is well understood that an object could function as a witness in the ancient Near East. Most legal transactions were presumably oral, but objects and persons qualified as witnesses. Documents, carcasses, garments, or oaths could be used as a witness. This knowledge helps inform our reading of texts originating in that place and time. For example, in the narrative of Joseph, Potiphar's wife used Joseph's garment to support her accusation against him. The sons of Israel also presented Joseph's torn garment as proof of his demise. These stories are not depicted as legal procedures, but the included objects lead us to conjecture how a public official would view the events. Material Culture of Documents To the ancient Israelites, the tablets containing the Ten Commandments are more than written admonitions. The tablets themselves are a proof of the covenant with God, Exodus 31.18. Beyond functioning as a witness, the material culture also held that inscriptions were essentially a character in their own right. Objects may witness, but they also act and can secure or guarantee future outcomes. A quintessential example of this material culture is depicted by foundation documents. For approximately 3,000 years, cultures in Mesopotamia constructed buildings over stone boxes containing documents, often metal. By placing written texts underneath notable buildings or within foundations, a king effectively says, quote, Every aspect of human civilized culture, the civilizing tendency itself, which gives birth to the temple, the palace, the city-state, his entire kingdom, and even to his own powers, is built upon the written document, close quote. In his paper, quote, An Everlasting Witness, Ancient Writings on Metal, close quote, Reynolds demonstrates, just as in the Near East, the Nephites also viewed writing as a witness. He writes that the Nephites knew, quote, metal plates would play a major role in God's final work, close quote. That vision resulted in creating, transmitting, and maintaining written witnesses. Aspects of Second Nephi allow it to be viewed as a witness in its time for multiple reasons. The book of Second Nephi contains unique cultural and legal components contemporary readers would clearly understand. 
Throughout the ancient Near East, documents were produced by professional scribes whose training and standing stood as guarantees of their documents' validity. Parties to legal actions in Nephi's time need not have signed legal documents to confirm their validity. The mere existence of a record produced by a known scribe could authenticate a record. An example is a surviving Demotic Egyptian divorce decree from 490 BCE. The document states the case for the divorce and ends succinctly. Scribe, Hora's son of Nez Hor Peshrat. No seal, signature, or list of witnesses accompany the scribe's name. In these cultures, whose literacy rates were a fraction of ours, the concept that a document's validity can only be confirmed by witness signatures did not exist in Nephi's time. Egyptian customs are particularly noteworthy in our discussion, as archaeological evidence suggests that scribes operated in Israel after Egyptian custom. Nephi also states he was trained in the language of the Egyptians, 1 Nephi 1-2. For over a decade, scholars have believed Nephi had formal training as a scribe, writing in Paleo-Hebrew, Hieratic, or Hieratic Cursive, Demotic. Texts in the latter style included, quote, contracts, lawsuits, and tax receipts. Nephi also demonstrates knowledge of Judean law. Altogether, this invites the possibility that he was able to produce legal documents. If 2 Nephi is considered a collection of documents, do those documents have significance beyond their religious meaning? For example, Jack Welch demonstrated that 2 Nephi 1-4 through assigns lands and designates the future leader of the people. In Nephi's time, the recording is valid because Nephi, likely a scribe, wrote the document. Neo-Babylonian Depositions To compare Nephi's writing with contemporary legal documents, let us consider various examples. In Neo-Babylonian tradition, documents discovered and used in legal proceedings included certain details. Pertaining to our discussion, official depositions often appear without a seal. Instead, they typically include the speaker's name and a patronym or title. They often include the scribe's name, date, and place of composition, and the list of persons present who witness hearing the statement. Documents communicating a judge's decision contain seal or seals, and those items found in a deposition. In describing ancient Mesopotamian court proceedings, Shalom Holtz describes four types of recorded depositions. Accusatory, testimonial, memoranda, and sworn. There are no identifying markings on court statements to identify them as depositions. This contrasts with old Babylonian times, when depositions may begin with the phrase, quote, tablet of confirmation, close quote, or, quote, tablet with a sworn statement, close quote. Neo-Babylonian depositions begin with, quote, personal name, said thus, close quote. Depositions do not describe the entire dispute, nor do they appeal directly to the judge to render a specific decision. They are made before officials or a group of people stating to whom the declarations are made or who was present. Studies suggest that some depositions used in legal cases were made in unofficial settings. Court record could also be made outside of official buildings. This may have been out of necessity. It is not likely that all judiciaries had equal access to courtrooms. A discussion of judiciaries will follow. 
Holtz identifies depositions based on their content, inclusion in the legal archive, their references to the case, adjudicating authorities, or audience. Depending on the type of deposition, the scribe may or may not be identified. As their name suggests, only sworn depositions document an oath taken by the speaker. Using Holt's analysis as a guide, Jacob's, Isaiah's, and Nephi's words in 2 Nephi, 2 Nephi 6-10, through 12-24, through 25-28 respectively, have features that are seen in formal witness depositions. The lack of surviving First Temple documents makes it difficult to create a detailed taxonomy of writing from that time. Entire genres from that era are likely unknown. It follows that we cannot establish with perfect certainty the precise nature of a text dating from Neo-Babylonian times. However, the characteristics of surviving depositions can support our analysis. Research has shown conclusively that cultures across Mesopotamia, including Israel, significantly influenced neighboring legal systems. In other words, aspects of the legal systems of surrounding nations may compare as a surrogate for the legal procedure within Judea. The comparison of Nephi's writing with contemporary legal documents is essential. Ancient Near Eastern documents help us detect some legal conventions and language of the period. Similarities with Neo-Babylonian Depositions An introduction similar to contemporary witness statements is found at the beginning of 2 Nephi 6. An example from the Yale Babylonian Collection Yale Oriental Series, YOS, 6131, begins, The Marbani, in whose presence Amin Aheatsur, the messenger of the crown prince, said thus to Nabu Shara Utsur, the Shah Resh Shari, administrator of the Ayana. This is followed by a first-person narration describing three cows being entrusted to another's care. In this excerpt, one notes the audience's identification, Marbani, and the use of formal titles, Messenger of the Crown. Holtz notes most depositions did not include a sworn statement or the recording of the oath. Instead of an oath, depositions typically describe the audience in front of whom the statement was made, as seen in YOS 6131. The inclusion of the audience is a certifying feature. Quote, a deposition could be taken before a local tribunal. It was recorded under the format, these are the witnesses before whom, personal name, stated. Quote. Knowing this convention may increase our understanding of the seemingly trivial words Nephi places in the superscription prior to Jacob's statement. He writes, quote, The words of Jacob, the brother of Nephi, which he spoke unto the people of Nephi. 2 Nephi 6.1 The mention of the audience, the people of Nephi, may be viewed as the inclusion of witnesses present at Jacob's statement, and not merely a historical detail. This tradition was not limited to Babylon. For example, when recording Egyptian, quote, transcripts, the participants and onlookers were put down as witnesses, close quote. Biblical superscriptions and ancient Near Eastern oracles typically do not mention the audience. A notable rare exception is Deuteronomy 1.1. Therefore, some information in the heading prior to Jacob's words is more characteristic of contemporary legal documents than scriptural text. 
Another aspect that makes Jacob's statement more like those found in legal records is the reference to Jacob as the, quote, brother of Nephi, close quote. The reference to the speaker's brother has no precedent in biblical superscriptions. Biblical superscriptions typically use a patronym, e.g. the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, Nehemiah 1.1. Yet, Jacob is not referred to as son of Lehi. Instead, he is the brother of Nephi. Such titles are found in Neo-Babylonian legal records. For example, in the deposition YOS 7.10, we read, Hashdaiah, the brother of Idaniah, said thus in the assembly. Again, we note the inclusion of the audience characteristic of the legal records we have discussed. Witnesses. Moving past the unique superscription, there are other indicators Nephi uses Jacob's words as a deposition. In the following parallelism, it is clear that Nephi views Jacob's words in 2 Nephi 6-10 through and Isaiah's words in 2 Nephi 12-24 through as witnesses. Quote, Wherefore I will send, Jacob and Isaiah's, words forth unto my children to prove that my words are true. Nevertheless, God sendeth more witnesses, and he proveth all his words. 2 Nephi 11.3 The citation presents a parallelism suggesting that Jacob and Isaiah are both witnesses. Bruce Van Orden writes, quote, Chapter 11 of 2 Nephi serves to connect the witnesses of Jacob, Nephi, and Isaiah. And it is here that Nephi explicitly applies the law of witnesses. Close quote. Initial readers of the Book of Mormon noticed Nephi's inclusion of Isaiah to corroborate his own words. The Law of Witnesses The Law of Witnesses, as understood by those in the First Temple period, and how Latter-day Saints understand it, is likely different. A Latter-day Saint may believe the Law of Witnesses refers to multiple sources establishing spiritual truth. For example, three witnesses testified the existence of the gold plates from which the Book of Mormon was translated. However, amid a list of civil laws, the law of witnesses appears to be focused on protecting the accused from immediate consequences of violated civil laws. Deuteronomy 17.6, KJV, states, quote, At the mouth of two witnesses, or three witnesses, shall he that is worthy of death be put to death. But at the mouth of one witness he shall not be put to death. Close quote. Also, see Deuteronomy 19, 15-21. Therefore, this convention, law, was used in judicial settings. Its implementation in the Second Temple period also suggests it was used in judicial settings. The Law of Witnesses appears modified in rabbinic literature and Qumran rules, but still refers to civil law imposing immediate consequences. Debate exists among non-Latter-day Saint scholars regarding Paul's reference to the Law of Witnesses in Corinthians. With this background, it is no surprise that David Garland argues Paul intends to, quote, take disciplinary action, close quote, with, quote, judicial proceedings, close quote, upon his return. Although Latter-day Saints may be familiar with the Law of Witnesses to determine the verity of gospel truths, it appears to be used in legal procedure in Judean culture. Nephi writes as if justifying his invocation of the law of witnesses, quote, Behold, my soul delighteth in proving unto my people the truth of the coming of Christ. For for this end hath the law of Moses been given. 
and all things which have been given of God from the beginning of the world unto man are the typifying of him. Second Nephi 11.4 By implication, it is perfectly acceptable for Nephi to use or appropriate the legal convention of the law to prove Christ's existence. Nephi's use of legal convention may be somewhat jarring to modern readers who differentiate between the affairs of church and state. But Nephi reassures the reader. Ultimately, because God gave the law of Moses to prove, quote, the truth of the coming of Christ, close quote, it follows that Nephi can use civil legal convention for the same purpose. This is especially true as such separation of civil and moral law imposes one's view, quote, on the text from outside the text, close quote. Nephi's explanation suggests his society can differentiate between civil and moral law. But there may not be a similar division between the two as we see today. If we accept that Nephi used legal convention to record and document religious matters, he would not be the only one to do so. Nehemiah 10 records several individuals sealing a covenant with God. Isaiah 5.3 incorporates a plaintive statement into his writing, which we will discuss later. Additionally, 4Q365 from the 1st century BCE demonstrates biblical text juxtaposed with legal text. Interestingly, quote, there's no scribal indication there is non-biblical material. The text simply flows out of biblical and into non-biblical material as if there were no difference between the two, close quote. Comparative analysis to prove in the Book of Mormon. Nephi states that he delights in proving to his people the truth, 2 Nephi 11.4. Ryan Sharp has suggested that because Nephi also delights in Isaiah's words, Nephi is using Isaiah's words as a proof. To better understand the Nephite concept of proof, I will turn to comparative analysis. As recorded in Alma 34.6-7, Hamulek states Alma, quote, proves that the word is in Christ, verse 6. Hamulek is explicit. Alma proved this by, quote, calling upon the words of Zenos, Zenic, and Moses, verse 7. It appears the cultural understanding of a proof in Nephite society refers to the expression of multiple testimonies. This usage is also seen when another prophet named Nephi exposes Seantum as the murderer of a chief judge. Nephi provides a miraculous sign exposing the murderer. However, the sign is not what proved the case. Following a confession, Helaman 9.38 reads that Seantum, quote, was brought to prove that he himself was the very murderer, close quote. The only contribution Seantum made to the case was his testimony. Yet Mormon writes, it was Seantum who proved the issue. These examples suggest the term prove in Nephite society refers to testimony or official statements. Parallelism and comparative analysis of the term prove are some details that show Nephi is using the words of Isaiah and Jacob as witness. Sworn Depositions and Oaths When depositions were made under oath, surprisingly little notation was used. Typical notation is, quote, they swore, close quote, saying, quote, indeed, followed by the statement, close quote. At times, the name of a deity was recorded as well. The following is an example from a case regarding a deposit of silver from BM 41663. Lines 9-11. Remut son of Shamash Lay, descendant of Arabtu, 
swore by Shamash before the judges and said thus, lines 11 through 12, I and Seliah are the creditors with debts owned by Idin Marduk. We did not know that silver was deposited with Nabu Shuma Ishkun. I will note that this tablet is sealed with the scribe's seal. This statement depicts two essential aspects of an oath, which are a statement of sincerity, authenticating element, and the oath content. Nephi's rhetoric in 2 Nephi 25.4 and, to a lesser extent, 2 Nephi 28.1, have features that are found in contemporary oaths. Blaine Conklin writes, quote, Oaths are generally authenticated either by appealing to a precious entity outside oneself or by calling down a curse. While it is not required to link the oath content and authenticating element, an explanation is often expressed with a complementizer. Oath content may contain a protasis, stating the claim, and an apodosis, stating the consequence if the claim is not verified. However, documented oaths rarely include the corresponding apodosis. The following is contained in 2 Nephi 25.4. Claim. I give unto a prophecy. Authenticating element, precious entity, according to the spirit which is in me. Claim restated. Wherefore, I shall prophesy according to the plainness which hath been with me from the time that I came out of Jerusalem with my father. Complementizer. For behold, my soul delighteth in plainness unto my people, that they may learn. When an apodosis is alighted, the resulting consequence is not entirely clear. For example, despite numerous oaths that swear with the life of a deity, to call a potential curse on the respected third party has not been performed as far as we know. Therefore, potential unstated consequences for Nephi may include death, i.e. for being a false prophet, or perhaps an acknowledgment that the Spirit is not in him. These two scenarios are in no way comprehensive. Other consequences might include punishment by the Spirit, upon which he swore, or to provide reparations of that which was lost due to Nephi's testimony. At the very least, it appears Nephi is staking all his credibility on his prophecy. Nephi's stylized oath also appears functionally equivalent to Judean oaths. A comparable oath is found in 1 Kings 22.14. Micaiah said, as the Lord lives, I shall speak whatever the Lord tells me. Nephi makes another oath, more typical of the time, but it does not appear to apply to the entire section. As the Lord God liveth that brought Israel up out of the land of Egypt, and gave unto Moses power that he should heal the nations after they had been bitten by the poisonous serpents, if they would cast their eyes unto the serpent which he did raise up before them, and also gave him power that he should smite the rock, and the water should come forth. Yea, behold, I say unto you, that as these things are true, and as the Lord God liveth, there is none other name given under heaven, save it be this Jesus Christ, of which I have spoken, whereby man can be saved. Second Nephi 25.20 Nephi again attests the oath regarding his prophecy in 2 Nephi 28.1. Nephi writes, quote, And now behold, my brethren, I have spoken unto you according as the Spirit hath constrained me. Wherefore, I know that they must surely come to pass. Close quote. The term surely 
is also consistent with King James' wording used to record sworn oaths. Further analysis is complicated as the composition in the original language is not extant. Neo-Babylonian legal procedure and plaintiff statements. Aside from those discussed, additional components in Second Nephi suggest it contains writings informed by legal conventions. These include a plaintiff statement and the promise of additional proof provided by the plaintiff. Additionally, the inclusion of legal rhetoric mentioning the sealing of the record and a judgment bar appears to be a reference to judicial activity. Due to the lack of records from Judean and Egyptian legal proceedings, of necessity we again must turn to other ancient Near Eastern cultures to understand the conventions that might have held sway in Nephi's time and place. This approach is reasonable, as some conventions were standardized over large regions. After evaluating a series of legal proceedings from multiple cities, contemporary to Nephi, Holtz wrote that the most common format of plaintiff statements includes three components. A. Opening, mention of plaintiff and adjudicating authority. B. Quotation of the plaintiff statement. C. Imperative to authority. For example, the document YOS 19101, written in 545 BCE and discovered in Babylon, discusses a decision record from a case that apparently pertains to a misappropriated shipment of dates. This document provides an example of a plaintiff statement. The first lines are translated as follows. Opening, lines 1 through 3. Nurgal Retsua, the slave of Idin Marduk, said thus to the judges of Nabonius, king of Babylon. Quotation of plaintiff statement, lines 3 through 6. Idin Marduk, my master, loaded a shipment of 480 kur of dates, for transport from the hinterland on the boats belonging to Amuru Natan, the boatman, son of Amaya. Line 7. He had him bear the responsibility for keeping the dates. Lines 8-10. through 10. He brought the boats to Babylon, and he gave me Idin Marduk's message. 480, Gur of dates, was written in it. Lines 11-12. through 12. I took account of the dates and 47 gur, one pi, were missing. Lines 12-14 I raised a claim against Amurunatan concerning the missing amount of the dates, and thus, lines 14-15, I did not take your dates. Line 15 Afterwards, an informer, line 16, four gur, one pi, of dates, line 17, and behind my boat, line 18, those dates in, lines 19 through 20, we contracted a contract stating thus, Amuru Natan illegally took seven gur, one pi of dates. Lines 22 through 23, after Amuru Natan wrote this contract until today. Line 24, now I have brought him before you. Imperative to authority. Line 25, establish our decision. The opening statement is demonstrated by mention of the plaintiff and adjudicating authority in lines 1 through 3. The plaintiff statement is given in lines 3 through 24. Finally, an imperative to authorities demands a judgment in line 25. Isaiah uses this format in records that survive in the Bible. For example, in the parable of the vineyard, Isaiah writes, quote, 
And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, I pray you, betwixt me and my vineyard. KJV Isaiah 5.3 Additional features of this passage in Isaiah make the allusion to a courtroom explicit. Such explicit allusions to a courtroom suggest plaintive statements may indicate a degree of specificity. Isaiah summarizes the facts of the case, identifies the adjudicating body, and demands a judgment be made. One may wonder if Nephi copies Isaiah's pattern here, and therefore merely happens to copy a plaintive statement unknowingly. However, people from various backgrounds used the plaintive statement to include slaves. The Bible records cases in Israel that could be held publicly with the citizenry acting as judges. This suggests some aspects of legal proceedings were commonly understood. The same plaintive statement formula is written near the end of Nephi's record. Nephi states, Opening I, Nephi, cannot tell all the things which were taught among my people, neither am I mighty in writing, like unto speaking. For when a man speaketh by the power of the Holy Ghost, the power of the Holy Ghost carrieth it unto the hearts of the children of men. But I, Nephi, have written what I have written. And now, my beloved brethren, and also Jew, and all ye ends of the earth. Quotation of Plaintiff's Statement These are the words of Christ. Imperative to authority. And if they are not the words of Christ, judge ye. Second Nephi 33, 1-11 Nephi mentions himself, the audience, and his claim before demanding a decision. This language is consistent with that found in legal records. An additional characteristic of ancient Mesopotamian court proceedings is the promise of additional proof provided by the plaintiff. This is in sharp contrast to today's convention. In modern times, all evidence must be presented before a judgment can be made. Holtz notes, quote, Most of the guarantees for testimony can be shown to be the result of the guarantor's accusations that must be substantiated. In these cases, the accusations were made during formal hearings, after which the guarantor assumed the responsibility for the testimony, close quote, i.e. by providing another witness. Nephi does this by stating, quote, Christ will show unto you with power and great glory that these are his words at the last day, and you and I shall stand face to face before his bar, and ye shall know that I have been commanded of him to write these things. 2 Nephi 33.11 Here again, Nephi's record is consistent with contemporary legal proceedings. Nephi is not esoteric. Because Nephi glories in plainness, he may include rhetoric describing his record as a legal document. In the final paragraphs of 2 Nephi, he mentions a judgment bar. Nephi's closing verse makes explicit reference to court proceedings. Quote, For what I seal on earth shall be brought against you at the judgment bar. Close quote. All twelve mentions of the word bar in the Book of Mormon refer to a setting of judgment. The Reader's Role The reader's position in this setting is initially ambiguous. Following the implications of this plaintiff's statement, Nephi posits the reader in an adjudicating role. It appears, then, that the words of Christ themselves are on trial. Nephi writes, quote, If they are not the words of Christ, judge ye. Close quote. The reader's role in the proceedings is nuanced. Unlike other prophets in the Book of Mormon, Nephi does not consistently posit God as a judge. When the reader is the defendant, Nephi identifies Christ's words as the judge. 
Nephi states, quote, He shall bring forth his words unto them, which words shall judge them at the last day. 2 Nephi 25.18 Restating the point, Nephi writes that, quote, The nations who shall possess, the writings in question, shall be judged of them according to the words which are written. Verse 22 Therefore, in this future courtroom, it appears Nephi is not speaking rhetorically, the reader and the written word assume the roles of both judge and defendant at different times. While Nephi's allusion to a judgment bar is clear, our relationship with God in the courtroom is more ambiguous. To better comprehend these implications, I will discuss ancient judicial structures. Ancient Near East Judicial Structure Because of such prevalent legal terms, the context of contemporary legal systems must be considered to interpret Nephi's message. In Nephi's day, the legal systems of neighboring nations allowed for appeals. Prior to that era, appeals were generally not allowed in Mesopotamia. Leaders had embodied deities, and judgments were immutable. To appeal a judgment put in question the capability of the leader. Even an attempt to appeal could result in punishment. This was not necessarily impractical, as punishment could be levied for false testimony. However, this stands in stark contrast to procedure in the Neo-Assyrian and Neo-Babylonian kingdoms, where appeal was practiced. The relatively new practice of appeal allowed defendants of the time to criticize lower court judges. While the king was ultimately responsible for justice, he was less directly involved. This resulted in numerous letters directed to Neo-Assyrian kings complaining of injustice by appointed representatives and subsequent requests for appeal. Further, appeals were likely needed due to what could be viewed as two legal systems in existence simultaneously. State administrators who were not legal professionals, such as treasurers, eunuchs, and cupbearers, could adjudicate cases. In contrast to the modern concept of mediator, these lower judges were state officials. Pierre Villard notes, quote, There also existed, alongside the notables acting as judges, a specialized judicial administration directed by two of the highest figures in the state. While this approach involved multiple levels of judges, they all derived their judicial authority from the king and acted as his representatives. Appeals for justice were therefore made by seeking the word of the king. Villard continues, Neo-Assyrian kings did not themselves pronounce the verdict in the cases submitted to them, but delegated this task to those whom they deemed competent for it. From the point of view of the petitioners, it was indeed the king who had rendered justice to them. Consistent with the tradition of his day, Nephi does not always place God as judge. Rather, the word of God will judge, and Christ will stand by and verify they are his words. In Nephi's judicially inflected writings, When the reader is at the judgment bar of God, the judge naturally should be a representative of God. In this case, the words of Christ. The Hebrew concept of words, debar, carries the presumption that words contain their reference essence or fundamental character. Therefore, the word of the Lord can represent the Lord, just as judges and designated functionaries at the time acted as representatives of the king. Additional meanings of debar include law or reality. The judge could be understood to be God's law or God's reality. Nephi's imperative to the reader is to judge if his words are the words of Christ. 
it is an imperative to judge if the book of Second Nephi is God's representative, his law, and his reality. In the process, Nephi explicitly posits the revealed law, expressed in words, as subjugate to God, mirroring the relationship between judicial functionaries and the embodiment of legal authority, the king. While one has the right to appeal and invoke the word of the king, Nephi assures the reader that his words are God's words. Differences between Nephi's record and legal records It would be irresponsible to admit key differences between Nephi's writings in 2 Nephi and Neo-Babylonian trial records. These include the detail of the writing and the absence of a list of names and seals. These differences do not change the overall interpretation. First, Nephi appears to be writing a verbatim record, whereas extant records appear paraphrastic. Remember that scribes did not act as transcriptionists, but played an active role in legal proceedings. For example, the following citation from three witnesses, YOS 766, reads, We were digging below the canal wall, together with Naniah Idin, son of Inin Zara Ibni, when we killed two ducks, property of the Lady of Uruk, from the pen of Nidintu and Guzanu, sons of Naniah, Idin, we buried them in mud. The record continues as a summary. The corpses of these two birds were inspected in the assembly. The assembly judges decided the accused must pay a thirtyfold restitution for the two ducks. In this case, the actual words of the judge are never recorded, The testimonies of three defendants are recorded as a single statement that is so brief it may be a summary rather than a verbatim record. Perhaps a contributing factor in Neo-Babylonian record-keeping is complications of the medium. The brevity depicted in Neo-Babylonian records is not ubiquitous in the ancient Near East. In the reign of Ramesses II, a surviving statement from a Theban court appears to include much more detail and may be more likely to be a verbatim recording. Cairo 65739 reads, As for myself, I am the wife of the district superintendent Simut, and I came to dwell in this house, and I worked in weaving, caring for my clothing. Now, in the regnal year 15, in the seventh year of my having entered into the house of the district superintendent Simut, the merchant Raya approached me with the Syrian slave Gemneheramentet, while she was a young girl, And he said to me, Buy this young girl and give to me her price. So he said to me, And I took the young girl and gave to him her price. Now look, I am saying the price which I gave for her in the presence of the authorities. List of items. And I gave them to the merchant Raya without there being any property of the citizeness Bakamut among them. And he gave to me this little girl and I called her Gemneheramentet by name. The papyrus goes on to record the judge's response. This case predates the Neo-Babylonian records by several hundred years. I present it as a comparison because existing judicial records from Egypt are rare. Cairo 65739 suggests the records in Egypt were closer to a word-for-word recording. If judicial records were made in Israel, the paucity of extant records suggest they were also made on a less durable median such as the papyrus observed in Cairo 65739.
It is reasonable that less durable material facilitated longer recordings. Therefore, while Nephi's lengthy record shows differences from some legal records, there appears to be a precedent for more detailed records in legal proceedings. The second deviation between Nephi's writing and Mesopotamian judicial records is the lack of a list of persons present. In YOS 766, the names of the assembled judges are listed following the decision. Likewise, in Cairo 65739, the names of six persons who were present were listed. These persons could attest to the proceedings. Nephi does not list individual hearers of his words. Toward the end of his record, he states the words were taught, quote, among his people, 2 Nephi 33.1. Additionally, as mentioned, Nephi does state Christ will show unto the reader that they are his words, 2 Nephi 33.11. This does have a loose similarity with the legal convention of the time. Those listed at the conclusion of the record can attest to the veracity of the record. Finally, following the list of names of those present, there would often be a seal. Likewise, immediately after mentioning Christ as a witness of the record, Nephi states he seals the record. This is a unique feature because books in the Hebrew Bible, as they are presented today, do not contain a seal, nor do they mention closing it with a seal. Yet in 2 Nephi 33, there is a reference to a seal, though there is no record of a seal. Nephi may be referencing the record as inaccessible. Chatham in Songs of Solomon 4.12 is understood as locked or inaccessible. Welch writes that the Book of Mormon prophets differentiate between seal versus seal up. Nephi's use of the word seal likely refers to, quote, physically tying the document shut and affixing a wax or clay seal to the closure, close quote. Seal up, as used in Moroni 10.2, signifies protected or safeguarded. Many references in the Hebrew Bible to sealed legal documents appear literal, i.e. Jeremiah 32.11-15. The act of using a physical seal in ancient Israel is well attested. Seals of the time typically had two lines that contained a name and a title or patronym. Legal custom in the surrounding region was to make multiple copies of judicial records. The sealed copy would have the seal or seals of the judge or judges present. Copies of the sealed document would include inscriptions of the seal or seals. To my knowledge, the manner of sealing contemporary metal records is not described. Metal foundation documents were written without seals and placed within stone boxes underneath or within a building's foundation. Sealed Roman plates have been found. If Nephi referred to legal convention, the seal may have been removed or the seal inscription wasn't included in the translation. Regardless, whether Nephi is speaking rhetorically or literally, that Nephi mentions sealing the document at the end of the record after naming a witness is certainly reminiscent of the contemporary legal practice we have been discussing. The paucity of books in the Hebrew Bible containing a seal and the simultaneous widespread use of seals in legal records suggest a sealing reference has some degree of specificity for legal texts. Again, in this regard, Nephi's record is more similar to contemporary legal documents than extant religious writings. Change of genre. Revision through introduction. One may wonder if Jacob and Isaiah intended their text as legal statements. 
Nephi's explanation of the law of witnesses could be viewed as an apologetic explanation for incorporating them as such. I do not consider their primary intent in this paper. They both may reference legal proceedings. However, it is important to note that they would not need to intend their writing as legal statements for Nephi to incorporate them as such. Sarah Milstein shows that scribes often revise text through the manner of introduction. Notably, insertions prior to a text can change the genre of the text. Examples of this include the Community Rule, 1 Chronicles 1-9, through the Greek versions of Esther, Deuteronomy 1-3, through and Nehemiah 1. If we consider the Judean legal genre, such as Deuteronomy or the Community Rule, legal precepts are prefaced by, quote, general information regarding the covenant, close quote. Deuteronomy 5, for example, contains the Ten Commandments. Prior to writing the commandments, there is some background framing the setting, verses 1 through 5. Considering this genre, it appears Nephi intends the book to be three statements. Second Nephi 6 through 28, prefaced by material introducing the text, Second Nephi 1 through 5. I view the three witness statements as the central portion of Second Nephi. The language of Judean legal texts and Second Nephi. The general language of extant Judean legal records is also described by Milstein. She offers suggestions of what legal rhetoric may have looked like. Common to many Hebrew legal texts are root variations, colorful features, unusual legal situations, resonance with contracts, emphasis on social roles, repetitive language, and discussion of money or other penalties. Certainly in isolation, None of these features can identify a legal text or rhetoric. Scriptural text is filled with such writings. However, because of their prevalence in Judean legal texts, these features likely form a sine qua non to identify such a text. If Nephi wrote Second Nephi with legal proceedings and format in mind, he might have considered using the established legal rhetorical flourishes. These findings are present in Second Nephi. See Table 1. While many of these features are seen throughout the Book of Mormon, it is essential to demonstrate their presence in Second Nephi to confirm language consistent with contemporary legal rhetoric. Table 1. Features in most Judean legal texts are also seen in Second Nephi. Feature. Colorful language. Verse. And they shall be visited with thunderings and lightnings and earthquakes and all manner of destructions, for the fire of the anger of the Lord shall be kindled against them, and they shall be a stubble, and the day that cometh shall consume them, saith the Lord of hosts. Second Nephi 26.6 Feature. Root Variations. Verse. Lehi counsels his sons to arise from the dust, afar, and leave darkness and obscurity, afel. Second Nephi 1.21 Nephi also uses permutations on Joseph's name. Following a prophecy by Joseph, we read that Laman and Lemuel choose to increase, yes, up, in anger. Instead, Second Nephi 3.5, resulting in hatred and rejection of the suzerain covenant of freedom. Feature. Unusual legal situations. Verse. For the atonement satisfieth the demands of his justice upon all those who have not the law given to them. Second Nephi 9.26. Feature. Residence with contracts. Verse. And they sell themselves for naught. For, for the reward of their pride and their foolishness, they shall reap destruction. Second Nephi 26.10 Feature. Emphasis on social roles. 
verse. They rob the poor because of their fine sanctuaries. They rob the poor because of their fine clothing. And they persecute the meek and the poor in heart because in their pride they are puffed up. 2 Nephi 28.13 Feature. Repetitive language. Verse. Woe unto the liar, for he shall be thrust down to hell. Woe unto the murderer who deliberately killeth, for he shall die. Woe unto them who commit whoredoms, for they shall be thrust down to hell. 2 Nephi 9.34-36 Feature. Discussion of money and other penalties. Verse. For the time speedily cometh that the Lord God shall cause a great division among the people, and the wicked will he destroy, and he will spare his people. Yea, even if it so be, he must destroy the wicked by fire. Second Nephi 30.10 Legal Reasoning Shin Hur analyzed legal reasoning in Genesis and Deuteronomy. This is particularly relevant as many place the authorship of much of Deuteronomy in the time of King Josiah, shortly before Nephi leaves Jerusalem. Her notes that cases from that period emphasize conjecture and transference, i.e., whether an event happened and with whom lays the fault. Her based this on the case of Tamar, Akan, and Deuteronomy 22.13.21. Less emphasis was placed on qualifying features such as degree of guilt or clarity of the law. This perspective is similar to what we read in Nephi's writing. Nephi is content to cite Isaiah's language, quote, For shall the work say of him that made it, he made me not. 2 Nephi 27.27 Nephi also states, quote, By the law no flesh is justified. 2 Nephi 2.5 To Nephi's audience, it appears a person is either guilty or not guilty. Rhetoric of the period depicts cases as black or white. This aspect of early Nephite culture may account for some of the rhetoric a modern reader may find binary. With that understanding in mind, it likely seems foolish and foreign to Nephi's original audience that the Gentiles of the last day will try to minimize or qualify their evil deeds. He states, quote, And there shall also be many in the last days which shall say, Fear God, but he will justify in committing a little sin, yea, lie a little, Take the advantage of one because of his words. Dig a pit for thy neighbor, there is no harm in this. And do all these things, for tomorrow we die. And if it so be that we are guilty, God will beat us with a few stripes, and at last we shall be saved in the kingdom of God. Second Nephi 28.8 Nephi mentions this to characterize, quote, false and vain and foolish doctrines, close quote, among the Gentiles. Second Nephi 28.9 Presumably, this example resonated with an audience unfamiliar with post-Hellenic arguments. Nephi's conservative and revisionistic citations of Isaiah Nephi's adaptive citations of Isaiah are well described. Scholars note that Nephi's writing, quote, makes additions, omits material in others, transposes and makes grammatical changes, close quote. Quote, as might be expected of a truly ancient and authentic record, close quote. In contrast, it is not clear that Nephi adapts the text of 2 Nephi 12-24, which appears to be a much more conservative citation. This next section demonstrates that Nephi reproduces Isaiah 2-14 using conservative techniques. A possible motive is that Nephi intends Isaiah's words to have formal purpose. Much of Nephi's Isaiah-centric writing can fairly be described as exegetical. This is not to say that he exceeded his remit as a scribe. 
exegetical techniques of the period were accepted and expected as core scribal activities. These included manipulation, harmonization, paraphrasing, allusion, and in some cases the addition of new material to expand on existing themes. Expansionistic techniques included inflation, glosses of long or complex passages, and synoptic additions. Quote, when Nephi engages with the writings of Isaiah, close quote, notes Ryan Sharp, quote, he's quite comfortable adapting the prophetic record, close quote. To accurately characterize texts from that era, it is helpful to classify them according to scribal intervention. Accordingly, these texts may be categorized broadly as conservative or revisionistic. Such classifications help us more fully appreciate the process by which each text was recorded and can avoid anachronistic labeling. Of course, not all texts fall neatly into any given category in their long histories. Some manuscripts may come down to us as the result of a mixed treatment. Such a characterization of Nephi's text is especially relevant to our discussion because the accurate rendering of a witness deposition may demand a more conservative approach. George Brooke describes five aspects of texts written by scribes when performing exegesis. He uses the term rewritten scriptural text to define the genre of the time. These include the following. The source is thoroughly embedded in its rewritten form, not as explicit citation, but as running text. The dependence of a rewritten scriptural text on its source is also such that the order of the source is followed extensively. The dependence of a rewritten scriptural text on its source is also such that the content of the source is followed relatively closely without very many major insertions or omissions. The original genre or genres stays much the same. The new texts are not composed to replace the authoritative sources which they rework. Brooks' criteria make clear 2 Nephi 12-24 does not qualify as rewritten while all other citations in 1st and 2nd Nephi are rewritten. Some consider 1st Nephi 20-21 a citation, but that view imposes our modern conventions on the text. Indeed, 1st Nephi 20-21 meets all scholarly criteria for its classification as a rewritten scriptural text. Most notably, without a superscription, it cannot be considered an explicit citation. This leaves modern scholars at something of a loss, as to where Isaiah's words actually start, C.F. Brooks' Criterion 1. Additionally, Nephi never states that his copy can directly replace Isaiah's words, Criterion 5. In contrast, prior to the citation of 2 Nephi 12-24, Nephi suggests his text may replace Isaiah's words as a copy. He writes, quote, And now I write some of the words of Isaiah, that whoso of my people shall see these words may lift up their hearts and rejoice for all men. Now these are the words, 2 Nephi 11.8. Another indication that 2 Nephi 12-24 is not an exegetical text is that it is introduced as an explicit citation of Isaiah. Quote, The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, 2 Nephi 12.1. These are two criteria that 2 Nephi 12-24 fails to meet. Therefore, only 2 Nephi contains a citation that is not demonstrably exegetical. Examples of Nephi's literary technique To get a sense of the fidelity with which Nephi treats 2 Nephi 12-24, we can compare it to a corresponding section in 2 Nephi 30. Fortunately, 
we have a section of Isaiah that Nephi cites twice, Table 2. While acknowledging the limits of textual criticism across translated texts, if we assume the English translation has any degree of correlation with the base text, then it does appear that these two passages appeared differently as Nephi wrote them. However, because analysis of Dead Sea Scrolls shows early written texts existed in multiple parallel versions, it is possible Nephi has multiple versions of Isaiah on the brass plates. But based on the conventions of the time, I would expect Nephi to change Isaiah's words in 2 Nephi 30. Surrounding 2 Nephi 30 is evidence of inner scriptural exegesis that meets all five criteria identified by Brooke mentioned above. Whatever Nephi's motivations behind the difference between 2 Nephi 21, 4-10 and 2 Nephi 30, 9-16, Table 2, only the latter text is firmly exegetical. Let us consider Nephi's situation. Nephi values Isaiah's words, but his children do not understand Isaiah, 2 Nephi 25, 1-3. Nephi seeks to preserve Isaiah's words for his people, 2 Nephi 11, 8. An easy way to resolve this dilemma would be to modify Isaiah's words. Nephi has the tools to do this, but Nephi appears not to do so in 2 Nephi 12 through 24. The data in Table 2 suggests that Nephi needed to comment on this text and change a few words. Instead of placing comments in 2 Nephi 21, which would risk compromising the record, Nephi rewrites these verses in a later section. This suggests Nephi will not allow even minor changes to the record in 2 Nephi 12-24. We would expect such fidelity with a document with a formal extrinsic purpose, such as a certified copy or a verbatim deposition. Considering the textual freedom enjoyed by scribes in Nephi's day, it seems clear that they copied text verbatim as a deliberate choice. Distribution of Variants Certainly, textual analysis is best performed in a text's original language. As Nephi's original writings are not available presently, we are left to compare KJV Isaiah with Skousen's The Book of Mormon, the earliest text. This is not an entirely expedient choice. Scholars have found evidence to suggest that the language of the King James Bible is the language or base text of the Book of Mormon. While a full discussion of this relationship is beyond the scope of this paper, it is clear that the King James Version is our closest available analog to Nephi's English text. Given the amount of Isaiah writings in Nephi's text, more than 400 verses, these two works lend themselves to quantitative comparison. Drawing on three sources, I will compare Second Nephi 12-24 to other sections of Isaiah found in Nephi's writing. Royal Skousen has dutifully reconstructed the earliest text of the Book of Mormon from all known sources. Using this text, he identifies the closest edition of the King James Version used as a base text. Skousen defined a citation when 16 identical words appear consecutively in both texts. Skousen then identified all textual variations within those citations. He published his data. All words not occurring in the analogous text were printed in bold font. For example, the four words, O House of Israel, in 2 Nephi 7.2, are in bold font because this phrase is not found in Isaiah 50.2. Similarly, minor variants are also bolded. For example, water is considered different from the plural waters. I tabulated all the words Skousen identified in each section. I found that 4.1% of the words in 2 Nephi 12-24 were bold. In other sections of the Book of Mormon, 
12.0 or 14.7 of the words are bold, figure 1. It is clear 2 Nephi 12-24 has only a third the rate of bold text, corresponding with variants, compared to other KJV citations in the Book of Mormon. While there are many possible causes for the discrepancy in these proportions, a possible contributing cause is changing between conservative or revisionistic scribal techniques. Many of the KJV citations in the Book of Mormon are exegetical, revisionistic, as they meet Brooks' criteria and are not meant to replace their corresponding texts. These generally exegetical texts have bolded words 14.7% of the time in Skousen's findings. The exegetical text by Nephi has a similar proportion, 12%. However, 2 Nephi 12-24 contains text that is seemingly closer to its KJV analog. 911 of 6,196, 14.7%, total words, were bolded in Jacob to Moroni. 462 of 3,858, 12%, total words, were bolded in Nephi's record excluding 2 Nephi 12-24. 310 of 7,537, 4.1%, total words were bolded in 2 Nephi 12-24. The proportion of changes in Nephi's citations excluding 2 Nephi 12-24 is similar to other sections of the Book of Mormon that are typically exegetical. John Tvetna's work offers a second approach to the same comparison. After a manual comparison by two reviewers, Tvetna's documented all variations between multiple versions of Isaiah and Nephi's texts. He found 416 verses cited in the first and second books of Nephi. The criteria for a citation was reviewer consensus. Figure 2 shows the incidence of variance by chapter. In 2 Nephi 12-24, he found that 46% contained minor variants. In all other Isaiah citations, 79% demonstrate a variant. More recently, Ann Madsen published a comparison of Isaiah variants found in Nephi's writings. Her methods varied from Tvetna's, as she was able to incorporate much of Skousen's critical text findings. Her results were nearly identical to those of Tvetna's. She found variance in 50%, 137 of 275, of 2 Nephi 12-24 verses. Outside those chapters, she reports 86%, 96 of 111, of verses had variance. Tvetna's found 46% and 79%, respectively. For readability, her publication does not include some verses where Isaiah is cited on multiple occasions, partially accounting for the minor difference in total verse count. Thus, all three studies, Skousen's word-by-word comparison and Tvetna's and Madsen's manual evaluations of variance at verse level, demonstrate that 2 Nephi 12-24 is closer to the corresponding Isaiah KJV text than other Isaiah citations. While this data may appear convincing, these data are significantly limited in that they do not attempt to measure causality. For that, we must rely on context. The differing rates of variance may suggest that one or more sections and block were systematically treated differently, intentionally or otherwise, than its corresponding analog. Content surrounding high variation areas corresponds with exegetical writings, and context surrounding low variation areas suggests a more conservative scribal approach. Thus, Nephi's conscious decision to leave aside exegetical techniques and cite Isaiah verbatim 
may have contributed to the discrepancy in variant rates. An attempt to classify Nephi's writings on the same terms as other contemporary literature further supports the view that 2 Nephi 12-24 is a conservative citation. I propose that Nephi places Isaiah's words as a witness. Other Isaiah citations found in Nephi's writings qualify as rewritten or revisionistic, a known practice in Nephi's time. This is one possible explanation for the unequal distribution of variants noted above. To understand 2 Nephi, the question is not limited to the existence of a lengthy Isaiah citation or to an en bloc decrease in rate of variance. We must also ask why a firmly non-exegetical and therefore conservative text is found in 2 Nephi. 2 Nephi 4-5 through Reactions to the Covenant Renewal If one views the initial chapters of 2 Nephi as part of a covenant or covenant renewal, it follows that the participants' reaction should be recorded. The events following the covenant renewals are often recorded. For example, following the Mosaic Covenant, the elders of the people saw God and ate, Exodus 24.11. After a covenant renewal performed by Jehoiada, the people, quote, slew Matan, the priest of Baal, 2 Kings 11.17-18. Similarly, after the Lahitic Covenant is presented, Nephi details his own commitment as well as Laman and Lemuel's rejection of the covenant. All parties had grievances and had anger with each other at one point. In 2 Nephi 5, the anger of Laman and Lemuel will eventually lead to hatred and a breach of the covenant. Martin reminds us that the term curse is covenantal language and signifies Laman and Lemuel made and broke a covenant. A curse can only apply if the covenant is made and breached. Nephi writes, quote, Because of their cursing which was upon them, they did become an idle people, full of mischief and subtlety. 2 Nephi 5.24 In future chapters, Nephi will expound on this and state the Lamanites will eventually be subjugated by the Gentiles. 2 Nephi 26.15 Much of 2 Nephi depicts the motives and results of not keeping the covenant. The Lamanites will see violence, great bloodshed, hatred, had become loathsome and captive to the devil. Ultimately, it seems Nephi is aware anger could determine their eternal destiny. Following the covenant renewal in the first chapters of 2 Nephi, one expects to read whether the covenant was accepted or not. Instead of unity, a schism took place. The Psalm of Nephi is in this section of the text and serves as an attestation of Nephi's commitment following the covenant renewal. An inclusio demarcates the text and emphasizes his point. Immediately preceding Nephi's psalm, Nephi introduces the topic of anger. He states, quote, Not many days after Lehi's death, Laman and Lemuel and the sons of Ishmael were angry with me because of the admonitions of the Lord. 2 Nephi 4.13 Nephi was also angry. He asks, quote, Why am I angry because of mine enemy? Verse 27 Nephi suggests anger is the, quote, enemy of his soul, verse 28, and resolves to, quote, not anger again, verse 29. Nephi chooses God and will prosper in his endeavors, quote, my God will give me if I ask not amiss, verse 35. In attestation, Nephi writes, quote, my voice shall forever ascend unto thee, my rock and mine everlasting God, verse 35. In marked contrast, the end of the inclusio reads, quote, 
but behold, Laman and Lemuel's anger did increase. Second Nephi 5.2 They will be, quote, cut off from the presence of the Lord. Second Nephi 5.20 Thus Nephi juxtaposes two parties that experience anger but have two different outcomes. This contrast also brings to mind the two choices Nephi had mentioned previously, liberty or captivity. Second Nephi 2.27 To choose anger results in captivity. In response to the Lamanites' rejection of the covenant and subjugate state, God will again reach out, offering liberty. Nephi uses permutations of Joseph, Yosip, and Yasap in these sections to link the prophecy of Joseph, anger, and the eventual restoration of Israel. Nephi resolves to, quote, anger no more, Yosip. Laman and Lemuel choose to increase Yasap in anger. This led to hatred, severance from God, and subjugation. Because of the Lamanites' eventual state, the Lord will need to set himself again, Yosip, 2 Nephi 6.14, to redeem his people. This is the fulfillment of Joseph's prophecy in 2 Nephi 3. Yet, in no way does Nephi overemphasize Joseph's role in the covenant, 2 Nephi 25.21. With permutations of Judah's name, Nephi intertwines the role of the children of Joseph and Judah in eventually keeping the covenant. Nephi writes that the Jews bring salvation, yet the Gentiles do not, quote, remember the travails and the labors and the pains of the Jews, close quote, in bringing forth the Bible and salvation. Nephi writes, quote, What thank they, Yodu, the Jews, et ha-Yehudim, close quote, playing on both the meaning and phonemes of the term. Additional meaning can be seen in the combined use of travails and salvation, as these suggest Jewish histories embodying the suffering servant, 2 Nephi 29.4. Considering the first chapters of 2 Nephi as a covenant renewal suggests Nephi's psalm is a response and is therefore not spontaneous. It is an intricately devised record referencing his and other parties' reactions to the covenant. Later, we will discuss 2 Nephi may be part of a sealed document. If that is the case, it is likely a summary of a more extensive document, which would further suggest the record is not spontaneous. Nephi's psalm also stays within the scope of a legal genre. A characteristic of Mesopotamian legal narratives is to incorporate multiple viewpoints. The psalm of Nephi subtly depicts Nephi's feelings. As a component of the covenant, consider Lehi designates Nephi as a leader, 2 Nephi 1.28. It is around this time that Lehi also dies. Nicholas Frederick notes a phrase in Nephi's psalm, quote, O wretched man that I am, 2 Nephi 4.17, is identical to Paul's statement in Romans 7.24, KJV. Frederick suggests this is a, quote, carefully integrated phrase, close quote, and that we can profitably compare the two stories. These citations occur when both individuals are at a crossroads. Paul is losing the Mosaic Law as a guide and now must rely on combating sin in a different way, without clear black-and-white rules. Similarly, Nephi is facing the loss of Lehi, his father, and long-term guide. The prospects of leading a divided and murderous people are on his mind. Nephi and Paul appear to feel the weight of relying on the Spirit's guidance more than ever. Altogether, 2 Nephi 4-5 through documents people's response to the covenant. It contains an inclusio, highlighting the role of anger in rejecting the covenant. 
it sets up wordplay to connect how the Lord will again set his hand to rescue the people despite this rejection. Nephi moves forward with trepidation and humility. Nephi's psalm also appropriately contains Nephi's feelings, attestation, and reasoning for following the Lord. The Purpose of Nephi's Second Book Up to now, I have argued Nephi's second book is a legal document. In modern times, we often view legal records as burdensome documents resulting in obligations and penalties. Far from a bureaucratic device depicting contractual terms, Nephi appears motivated to use Isaiah's words in gathering Israel. Following the citation of Isaiah, Nephi employs nearly an entire chapter to the coming forth of a book that will be influential in restoring Israel, 2 Nephi 27. To understand how this book will restore Lehi's posterity to its gathered state, we must first consider one of the Lord's strategies. Nephi states that the children of Israel, quote, swear by the name of the Lord and make mention of the God of Israel, yet they swear not in truth nor in righteousness. 1 Nephi 21. It seems that the Lord has a problem. Israel's children continually state that they will obey his word, but do not follow through on their pledge. They, quote, do not stay themselves upon the God of Israel. 1 Nephi 22. God mentions at least two strategies here. First, he will predict events. He declares things and then shows their completion. God inspires prophecies and demonstrates their fulfillment. The Lord does this because he knows that Israel is obstinate and may claim that idols brought the acts about. 1 Nephi 20, 4-5 While Isaiah gives and records many signs, e.g. Isaiah 8, many of Isaiah's words can be interpreted as references to a, quote, local, though still international, series of events, close quote. Nephi expands upon this prophecy, depicting it, quote, as a series of global events of universal import, close quote, that will eventually culminate in Israel's gathering. The importance of a verifiable record cannot be understated. The words of a book play a key role in the Lehitic covenant. The importance Nephi places on this book is reminiscent of Lehi's words. As Lehi was dying, 2 Nephi 3.25, he said to one of his sons, quote, Wherefore, because of this covenant thou art blessed, for thy children shall hearken unto the words of the book. Verse 23. These are far from the only references to a pivotal book. Second, aside from prophecies and fulfillment, the Lord declares new things that were hidden and unknown. First Nephi 26. Thus, both fulfilled prophecy and new information are aspects of God's attempt to reconcile Israel with their words and oaths. We can perhaps understand Nephi's purpose from Mormon's perspective. He values first and second Nephi and writes that these words are pleasing to him because he, quote, knows that as many things as have been prophesied concerning us down to this day have been fulfilled, and as many as go beyond this day must surely come to pass. Words of Mormon 1.4. Jacob describes his record in a similar manner. His words speak, quote, concerning things which are and which are to come. Second Nephi 6.4. Nephi states, he writes, so the reader may rejoice, 2 Nephi 11.8, be persuaded to believe in God, 1 Nephi 6.4, and know God's intent is to make the reader, quote, mighty even under the power of deliverance, 1 Nephi 1.20. Presumably, these are the purposes of Nephi's books and the use of legal convention in 2 Nephi. Nephi writes in the best way he knows will help the reader affirm the prophecies are true. 
Nephi includes Isaiah's prophecies that Assyria will destroy northern Israel, Samaria. He also includes a prophecy that Assyria will not destroy Jerusalem. Assyria shall, quote, remain at Nob that day, 2 Nephi 20:32. Continuing in 2 Nephi 20, we find a prophecy of the destruction of Assyria. From Nephi's perspective, these things have come to pass. Nephi appears to follow the example of Isaiah. He continues with his, quote, own prophecy, 2 Nephi 25:7, and includes new information and predictions. His prophecy includes the destruction of Babylon. Some Jews will be carried off to Babylon, and then the Jews will return to Jerusalem, verses 10 through 11. Nephi prophesies of Christ's crucifixion and resurrection, and that Jerusalem will be destroyed again, verse 14. He also predicts the timing of Christ's first coming, verse 19. Hauntingly, Nephi also predicts the destruction of his own people, 2 Nephi 26, 7. Many nations rise and fall. Predicting details beforehand is remarkable, but perhaps not as impressive as aiding and helping such nations. Nephi shows that, woven through Isaiah's prophecies, are recurrent references to a remnant. Israel is different than other nations because after Israel falls, it not only has a viable remnant, but upon the restoration of that remnant, salvation will be brought to the Gentiles. Ultimately, Nephi viewed the purpose of his record as contributing to the preservation and gathering of Israel, the children of Joseph at the very least. Nephi writes, Wherefore, for this cause hath the Lord God promised unto me that which I write shall be kept and preserved and handed down, that Joseph's seed should never perish. 2 Nephi 25.21 Overall, as a legal record, 2 Nephi keeps with God's strategies to reclaim Israel by predicting events and then showing their completion, 1 Nephi 23. This view stresses the important role prophecy and information will play in the gathering of Israel. To be convincing, Isaiah and Nephi's words predate their predictions. It follows that Nephi intends to make a verifiable record using legal conventions. Deutero-Isaiah With the above in mind, we can now understand the significance of finding Deutero-Isaiah in the Book of Mormon. Deutero-Isaiah is a literary construct based on diligent literary analysis. Since the 18th century, scholars have hypothesized that Isaiah chapters 40 through 55 form a distinct entity written more than a hundred years after the life of Isaiah. Because some consider Deutero-Isaiah to have been written after many of the events it prophesies, Passages ascribed to that entity have been described as a retroactive legitimation of the prophetic message. Such an interpretation would appear to compromise the Lord's strategy. A full discussion of Deuter-Isaiah lies outside the scope of this paper. However, several factors relevant to the discussion of Deuter-Isaiah also affect our understanding of 2 Nephi. Deutero-Isaiah is generally dated after 550 BCE, primarily because it refers to the Persian king Cyrus, 590 to 529 BCE, anonymously and by name. Other considerations suggesting this view consider that much of Deutero-Isaiah is written from the perspective of Babylon's destruction and the emphasis on rebuilding Jerusalem. Its themes also differ from the rest of Isaiah. Isaiah 1-39 warns Israel of its imminent danger and prophesies of its destruction. In comparison, Deutero-Isaiah contains, quote, nothing but prophecy of salvation, close quote. 
It also seems to cite material that may have been written in response to the Babylonian exile. Other themes, such as the servant of the Lord, and vocabulary such as Redeemer, are unique within the book of Deutero-Isaiah as well. Deutero-Isaiah has a shift in narrative voice. Finally, its syntax and grammar are consistent with late biblical Hebrew, not the classical biblical Hebrew in which the rest of Isaiah is written. Regarding authorship, it has been proposed that a prophet or circle of disciples dedicated themselves to building upon Isaiah's original writings. Because the language found in Isaiah 40-55 through is not priestly or deuteronomistic, and because it features substantial incorporation of psalms, it has been proposed that Deuteroisaiah was composed by temple singers. The prominence of Zionistic themes points to the possibility temple personnel were authors of Deuteroisaiah. The notation of textual adaptation may run counter to our modern preconceptions of the way a sacred text should be transmitted. But as we have discussed throughout this paper, adaptation of the source text was a common and expected scribal activity. Quote, no one form of the biblical text could be said to be preferred before the late 1st or 2nd century CE. Quote. This includes texts produced in religious centers. Quote, the creative, revisionist scribal approach was just as welcome in the Jerusalem temple as the exact scribal approach, close quote, argues Crawford. In this light, the idea that temple psalmists may have added a verse here or there should not trouble modern readers. Such modifications presumably made the text more meaningful to the author, orator, or audience. Notwithstanding these advantages, a potential problem arises when texts claim to contain predictions and prophecy. Clearly, when a text is continuously updated, it is difficult to determine what was predicted and when. Nephi's Record as a Witness for Isaiah's Writings Setting aside how Nephi viewed his record, we need to discuss what the text means to us today. Ultimately, because he left Jerusalem around 600 BCE, Nephi's writings support a pre-exilic date of composition for the portions attributable to Deutero-Isaiah. It is reasonable to conclude changes were made to Isaiah's text during the post-exilic period, and these could certainly support the dating of Deutero-Isaiah to a later period. It is another thing altogether, however, to suggest that Deutero-Isaiah did not exist in any form prior to the Babylonian destruction. Crawford contends in a discussion of biblical texts generally, quote, Each biblical book reached a recognizable shape at the end of its redactional process, and that shape governed the activity of the scribes who transmitted it going forward. For example, the shape of Exodus began when the Israelites in Egypt. The text within that shape was not fixed, but the shape itself was stable. Thus, even though Exodus exists in two literary traditions, Proto-Rabbinic and Pre-Samaritan, it is recognizably Exodus in both editions. Because biblical books tend to retain their shape, the existence of Deutero-Isaiah in 2 Nephi suggests Nephi had access to an early version, or shape, of the text. The exact phrases and terms will vary based on scribal tradition and translator constraints. 2 Nephi as a modern harmonized text. As we have discussed, the KJV is the base text for the Book of Mormon. The translator of the Book of Mormon incorporated citations from the New Testament. It is therefore difficult to imagine reluctance in drawing on sections of KJV Isaiah for Nephi's writings. Like New Testament passages, the wording of these translations may appear anachronistic. 
Under a creative and cultural translation model, a translator may have a good reason to produce a text familiar to its intended audience, rather than a strictly literal translation. Royal Skousen writes, quote, All of this quoting from the King James Bible is problematic, but only if we assume that the Book of Mormon translation literally represents what was on the plates. Yet the evidence argues that the Book of Mormon translation is tied to early modern English, and that even the themes of the Book of Mormon are connected to the Protestant Reformation, dating from the same time period. What this means is that the Book of Mormon is a creative and cultural translation of what was on the plates, not a literal one. Based on the linguistic evidence, the translation must have involved serious intervention from the English-language translator who was not Joseph Smith. Nonetheless, the text was revealed to Joseph Smith by means of his translation instrument, and he read it off word by word to a scribe. To our modern-day skeptical minds, this is indeed, quote, a marvelous work and a wonder, close the full citation Skousen. I find the evidence of a creative and cultural translation compelling. Skousen's model of the translation process may be controversial, but it is akin to the process of harmonization performed by ancient Judean scribes. Harmonization is the integration of multiple textual traditions. One of the dozens of examples suggesting the Book of Mormon is not a literal translation is found in 3 Nephi 12.15. The KJV is quoted as, quote, Do men light a candle? Close quote. A literal translation should read, quote, Do men light a lamp? Close quote. Such a translation can make the text more relatable to its readers, yet Portions of the 1829 English translation of Nephi's writings represent variants absent from the KJV and are found in the Septuagint, or only in the Great Isaiah Scroll. This suggests the translator by no means disregarded Nephi's record completely. Rather, the translator went between the text and incorporated the parallel records into a single text. Regardless of why the translator used the KJV and Nephi's record, the practice is reminiscent of Judean scribal behavior we have been discussing. As far as we can tell, scribes did not favor one text over another when citing or harmonizing texts. Scribes would cite multiple sources even within the same document. As an example, in the production of 4Q175, a scribe incorporated both proto-Masoretic and pre-Samaritan textual traditions. Such harmonized scriptures were, quote, considered valid scripture passages since they were used in phylacteries, close quote. Similarly, incorporating the KJV and Nephi's translation allows horizontal interaction between the textual traditions. Because the KJV is based on the Masoretic textual tradition, ultimately our translation of the Book of Mormon incorporates Judean, Deuteroisaiah, textual traditions. Further, because of the integration of early Protestant language and themes, that textual tradition is also incorporated. Finally, given multiple Pauline phrases, we have only discussed one, early Christian texts are incorporated as well. The translation of Second Nephi we have access to can be read as a harmonized text incorporating Nephite, Judean, Masoretic, early Protestant, and early Christian textual traditions. There's consensus among scholars that quoting a source indicates authoritative or scriptural status. Therefore, those who view the Book of Mormon as sacred may consider the translator's methods a tribute to the validity of the various traditions. Certainly, human errors or omissions occur in all records. 
but by no means is the effort of hundreds of anonymous scribes and transmitters set aside. Rather, it is incorporated. I have attempted to demonstrate Nephi's intentions while writing Second Nephi. I propose he intended it to read as a legal document. However, another thing altogether is the analysis of the translation we have. I agree with Skousen's view of the translation process, but it complicates the thesis of this paper. I suggested the minimal variance in 2 Nephi 12-24 compared with other portions of Nephi is due to Nephi's desire to produce a verbatim record and to limit his adaptation of the text. Instead, we must consider Nephi's words, the effect of Judean scribes, and the effect of the translator or translators of Nephi's writings. Numerous causes could affect the distribution of variants, e.g., perhaps the translator or translators, relied more heavily on the KJV for a particular section or, as we discussed, exegetical changes by any party. Harmonization and translation process aside, because the general content of a text typically remains intact, inclusion in Nephi's writings suggests he had access to an early version of what we call Deutero-Isaiah. Changes in terminology and grammar are expected scribal activity, as well as other previously mentioned exegetical techniques. Later, quote, leaving anachronisms in spelling and grammar became the fashion in Greece and Rome, close quote. As Israel returned from Babylon with new Hebrew dialects, they likely read and sang the celebratory half of Isaiah much more than the first section that prophesied destruction. Considering the people's history and well-described practices involved in textual transmission, we reasonably expect anachronistic findings and expansions in pre-exilic texts. The content of Nephi's translation suggests material and themes found in Deuteronomy existed prior to the Babylonian exile. Our current translation appears to harmonize Nephite and post-exilic Judean records. Sealed Records if Nephi did intend 2 Nephi as a legally permissible record containing Isaiah's words to validate his own writing, it is ironic the text we have today is harmonized, though that doesn't necessarily delegitimize it, and witnesses to Isaiah's words. However, we have not fully considered the cultural practices associated with legal documents. Legal documents of that day were written at least twice. One copy was for public view, and another for safekeeping to be opened in need of court proceedings. In his paper, Doubled Sealed Witness Documents, From the Ancient World to the Book of Mormon, Jack Welch notes the word sefer, often translated as book, even in this singular, can refer to both sealed and unsealed copies of the same document. He writes, quote, Nephi could sometimes speak of that doubled book as a single document, close quote. I do not mean Nephi refers to a sealed analog of 2 Nephi in 2 Nephi 27. Rather, Nephi clearly understands a sealed document to be a document with two parts. This applies to our discussion, since the final verse of 2 Nephi references sealing the record. This may signify its legal authority and place 2 Nephi in a genre of double books. In other words, 2 Nephi may point to a second sealed copy that includes more content. Quote, the second part of many double documents was not always a verbatim repetition of the first part. Quote. Unsealed portions contain as little as a quarter of the sealed copy's text. Before Hellenistic influence on Judah, the primary or controlling document was the sealed portion. 
regardless of Nephi's meaning. Our lack of access to Nephi's entire body of work, and perhaps even to a literal translation of his writings, is analogous to long-standing limitations on access to full sealed records. Similar scenarios appear to be common to all gospel ages. The Israelites did not have access to the tablets containing the Ten Commandments, as they were sealed in the Ark of the Covenant. Rather, they were only able to directly view copies that were man-made and likely less visually impressive. Welch mentions long-held tradition that even King David had not read the sealed book of the law, thus implying that he was missing aspects of the law. Sealed documents, including much of what Moses wrote, were never distributed. Similarly, the Nephites maintained records whose distribution was forbidden, Alma 45.9. The Jaredites had information that was not distributed, Ether 3.21. As discussed above, Nephi also differentiates between, quote, words which are not sealed, close quote, and, quote, things which are sealed, 2 Nephi 27, 8, and 15. Nephi does promise that we will get access at the appropriate time, quote, and the day cometh that the words of the book which are sealed shall be read upon the housetops, 2 Nephi 27, 11. Nephi wrote, quote, wherefore the things of all nations shall be made known, yea, all things shall be made known unto the children of men, 2 Nephi 30, 16. If this is the case, our copy of Second Nephi was never intended by Nephi to be the controlling or primary document. Rather, it points to a sealed document. This tradition continues in our time, and it is entirely appropriate for now that we do not have access to Nephi's sealed record. Returning to our original thesis, if we consider Second Nephi as a legal text, it also follows that a second copy, likely lengthier, exists. Conclusion the Book of Mormon was translated without punctuation or extensive formatting. This lack of formal features can sometimes make it difficult to know what we are reading. Second Nephi contains an agreement, Second Nephi 1 through 4, followed by a record of the participants' reactions, Second Nephi 4 through 5, followed by three witness statements, Second Nephi 6 through 10, 12 through 24, and 25 through 28, followed by a plaintiff statement, Second Nephi 33. Nephi's allusions to sealing the record and to a bar of judgment, his discussion of the law of witnesses, his reference to Isaiah and Jacob as witnesses, formatting and verbiage consistent with Neo-Babylonian depositions and plaintiff statements, practices used in Neo-Babylonian legal procedures, such as requesting an initial judgment be made in the absence of, but with the assurance of, additional future evidence, vocabulary, paranomasia, reasoning, and finally, the inclusion of lengthy non-exegetical texts together are idiosyncrasies of Second Nephi. A possible explanation is that Nephi is using legal convention. While all the records on metal plates were likely construed in the aggregate as a witness by the Nephites, the unique formatting of Second Nephi argues strongly that it should be viewed as a witness on its own merits based on legal convention. Author's Note I would like to express gratitude for the assistance of Melissa LaRue, B.A., Skellefteå, Sweden, for editing primary source research and translation of non-English citations. Martin Oman Evans is a physician specialized in allergies and immunology. He lives in Maryland and serves as a Sunday school counselor. He raises two children with his wife, Anne-Marie. Martin is a clinical pharmacology fellow. 
He currently is assigned as an assistant professor of medicine at Uniform Services University of Health Sciences. This has been a recording of Second Nephi as a Legal Document by Martin Oman Evans, published in Interpreter, a Journal of Latter-day Saint Faith and Scholarship, Volume 60, 2024, read by Victor Wirth. This audio recording is copyrighted under a Creative Commons license and may be freely distributed if it remains unchanged, the journal and its website are credited, and is for non-commercial use. A printed version of this and many other articles on Latter-day Saint scripture can be found at journal.interpreterfoundation.org. More information about the Interpreter Foundation, along with a wide array of additional resources, can be found at interpreterfoundation.org.